0: This episode of Motley Fool Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. fool This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick. And I'm all alone because it's our annual visit to Fool Fest where we sneak you into our great big member event that happened in June. We're talking stocks. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Every year, hundreds of Motley Fool members come together in Alexandria, Virginia for a little something we call Fool Fest. It's two days of learning about investing, talking stocks, and meeting analysts and planners and just geeking out about money. Some of you, dear listeners, were there because I met you and got to talk to you, and that was awesome. But for those of you who weren't there, we're going to sneak you into a few of the presentations this week and also next week. So let's start with some opening remarks from David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool.
1: About 20 years ago, when my brother Tom and I were talking about doing our first radio show at the time, we didn't have a lot of experience with radio. Neither one of us had done college radio. Uh, We'd heard a lot of radio, but all of a sudden we were going to be doing a radio show. So we began to bring in people uh, to uh, join us as associate producers, people who actually knew radio. And we were interviewing uh, a lot of people back in that day. And one of them came through, and I'll always remember our conversation now, the spoiler alert is that he didn't get the job. And so I don't know his name or who this was, but I'll never forget what he said. He said, uh, you know, a lot of people, when they think about good radio or doing better radio, they think it's about your voice. It's about how you modulate your voice. It's using white noise like that. (laughs) You might be able to hear, I don't have full command of my voice this morning. This is a little bit of froggy. It's either that I woke up about two hours earlier than I normally do on Fridays or that I talked too much yesterday or both, but um, he said it's not about how you modulate your voice, he said good radio, better radio is as simple as this, lead a more interesting life, and then talk about it, go out, meet interesting people, try new things, take risks, if you're interested in technology, which I know many of us are, try, be an early adopter, travel the world. Lead a more interesting life. Again, he didn't get the job, but (laughs) it's a great line. And I think that's the secret to better investing. So the secret to better radio is the secret to better investing. Lead a more interesting life. We are surrounded today by all kinds of possibilities. In my podcast, Rule Breaker Investing, a couple months ago, I picked five stocks and I called it five stocks for the age of miracles, because I think that's the age that we're living in right now. Things are being cured and new possibilities are emerging that could never have been contemplated by our ancestors. That's just one field, medicine, biotechnology, health. Um, Just think about the possibilities uh, that we take for granted today. Uh, Saying goodnight to our kids via Skype on an airplane when back in the day, I was there with a collect call from David for my parents, not able to see them, very expensive, just half a generation ago. A remarkable world of possibilities. You know, we have a new purpose statement, smarter, happier, and richer. We've talked some about that in, in recent months. We've only changed it maybe four or five months ago. We don't change our purpose very often at the Mali maybe once a decade. If there's any anxiety that I have about our statement It's that, it's the E-R part, er, -er, smart-er, happy-er, rich-er. So there's a constant pressure, I guess, always to be leveling it up. Can you ever be rich enough? I think so. Can you ever be happy enough? Probably. Can you ever be smart enough? Probably not. (laughs) But smarter, happier, and, as we've said, the most important word is and, and richer. So I hope that we demonstrate that for you today. I hope that you're enjoying your Fool Fest experience if you've been with us for a couple of days. And uh, I want to, before I yield the stage, I guess I want to just do two more things. One is, I want you to raise your hand if you know the following term. If I'm not going to call on you, but if I did, could you define it? Raise your hand if you know what a spiffy pop is. I think I do this every year. It, makes, it just makes me happy. <laughs> -er. (laughs) Happy-er. Now, not every hand went up, so I'll just briefly say that one of the most interesting things you can do as you lead a more interesting life as an investor is shoot for and achieve a spiffy pop. And that's when you make more money in a single day than you did when you bought that stock way back when, whenever that was. So, a quick example. If you bought a stock for $23.25 seven years ago, and after an amazing earnings report yesterday, that stock went up $27 today, 27 is greater than 23.25, you just had a spiffy pop. Motley Fool Services, Stock Advisor, and Rule Breakers probably most prominently had 54 spiffy pops for our members last year. 54. So I hope... I hope that you, and I bet, I trust many of you have experienced that. We want to bring that to the whole world. The two biggest challenges to the whole world spiffy popping are, number one, I would say constant media attention, hyper-focused on the short term, with no real sense that there can be things more beautiful than mere pops. Stock popped 11% after hours, did it? Well, what about a spiffy pop? So. I see more hands go up every year here when I ask that, and I love it. I hope you're making friends, family members, and other people, investment club mates, aware that that's the real pop to shoot for. So the two biggest hurdles to the whole world spiffy popping are number one, most of us just don't even get that that could be possible on the public markets, and yet it really is. It's very doable. The second big hurdle to the whole world spiffy popping is that not the, the whole world isn't investing. Tom and I are really excited in 2019 because in addition to many of the things that The Motley Fool can now do, things like Million Acres, for those familiar with that, or our Motley Fool Venture Fund, which we've talked about a couple of days ago, some new services that we've been bringing. We have new possibilities because we're now growing from capital. We're growing from cash flow and from money in the bank. It's a very exciting time. We're hockey-sticking here in year 26 of our startup. And one of the things that I'm personally most excited about, and Tom and I are very fired up about this, money's already committed, and I'm just gonna let you know this right now. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing it with you before the plane's really been fully built. So we're building the plane as I'm talking about it. But starting in 2019, there's gonna be a new thing in this world, and it's called the Fool Foundation. And the Fool Foundation, the goal of the Fool Foundation right now, Rough Draft, is to prepare the whole world to invest because there are a lot of people who love and know investing in this room and even outside this room there are still a lot of investors worldwide but there are many many people who are not invested and so their biggest hurdle to spiffy popping is that they're not even investing and I think at a time where people are questioning the beauty of capitalism and when it's practiced beautifully and it is every day It's an amazing thing. There are people who are skeptical about capitalism. There are people who don't have financial literacy in their schools. Maybe Fool School can help. And the Fool Foundation, which we're really excited to announce to you, is coming this year. I hope you'll have an eye out toward what we're doing and maybe want to come and support the Fool Foundation to prepare the whole world to invest, to try to solve for the whole equation, not just for you and me to be smarter, happier, and richer but everybody, spiffy pops worldwide. Have a great day. Love y'all. Thank you.
0: Thanks to NetSuite by Oracle for sponsoring today's episode. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Chances are, if you're a business owner, you have a hard time wrangling your numbers. You have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's just a big, inefficient mess, taking up too much time and too many resources, and that hurts your bottom line. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. This business management software handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide: seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com/fool. That's netsuite.com/fool to download your free guide: seven key strategies to grow your profits. netsuite.com/fool head to a chat from the first day of Fool Fest called Making Sense of the Market. It features Jason Moser, Abby Malin, Aaron Bush, and Bill Mann, and was hosted by Chris Hill. Chris kicks it off with a question for the audience about when they think the market is going to go sideways.
2: A National Association of, for Business Economics survey released just this past Monday, found that business leaders are growing more concerned that the U.S. is going to enter a recession In which year? Let's go on to the next slide and see what the survey actually said. It was 2020. Let's start there, Bill Mann. Um, Let's assume that these uh, business leaders are correct, that there's going to be a recession in 2020. What if anything should stock investors do with that information? Can I reject
3: the premise of that question?
2: No. (laughs) Yeah, here we go. So uh, about
3: 10 years ago, Jamie Dimon was invited by Nabe to be a member of this panel. And so he said, well, I'm going to go back and pull some data. And what he figured out is that uh, by and large, these business managers have absolutely no predictive ability to tell you when there's going to be a recession or even growth in the market. So forget it. (laughs) Back to you, Chris. (laughs) No, th- I, I, I think that obviously we have had a bull market now that is in its 11th year, and at some point, business cycles do what they do, and uh, there will be a recession. Oddly enough... The actions of of all of the largest companies in America belie the opinion of these business leaders. What's happened over the last two years, and I know that you all have seen this in the news, is there's been a tremendous amount of stock buybacks by our largest companies. Now, what actually is a stock buyback? A stock buyback is a way in which you essentially replace the equity in your company with debt. And what is debt? Debt is leverage. Leverage is what companies use when they intend to grow. so i ask you if we're really worried about a recession in 2020 why are we taking
2: on debt back to you chris doesn't that assume <laughs> that they're all making they're all 100% they are all making right? it
3: up that's my point
4: <laughs> yeah econ- economics especially macroeconomics is pseudoscience and if you disagree come debate me later but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah no one knows and so yeah to prepare for a recession in 2020, why not prepare for it later this year or in 2021 or prepare for it not to happen in any of those years? I think the question of preparation is much more about just recognizing hey, a recession happens once on average, I don't know, every like six, seven years, something like that. And so build your portfolio, manage your finances in a way in which that happens every six, seven years, no matter what the year is.
5: I think it would be important to remember too. Um maybe a little bit of a cash management strategy here. So um, we always say that money that you need in the short term, so say the next five years, really shouldn't be invested in the market. But we want people to feel um, excited and opportunistic if and when we do have a recession. So keeping a little money on the sidelines for if and when, since we are long overdue for recession, um, I think that could be maybe a strategy that would be helpful.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to just approach this problem and think, okay, well, let's always just remember it's when we have the next recession, it's not if. So if you just approach it from the perspective that it's when, not if, does if uh, if or when it happens really matter? Uh, I mean, I don't know that it does. I think Abby makes a great point in regard to cash management because everybody's situation is a little bit different. I mean, how old you are, whether you're working, whether you're retired, family, no family. I mean, we all have a lot of variables uh, that we have to consider. I, I do want to go back to what David was talking about here just a few minutes ago because I liked how he married the the index fund along with individual stocks. You know, and I think that's really something that you know, I like to shine a light on that as an option for investors because whenever I feel like, man, maybe there just aren't really a lot of deals out there today, there's not a lot of stocks that I like where I feel comfortable necessarily with the prices i think oh yeah i remember every time i get paid every two weeks you know part of that check is going into an s p index fund that i've been dollar cost averaging into for almost 10 years now i've been with a fool and and time is one of these things that we need to be able to understand the power but when you look back over time and you see the track record that dollar cost averaging into a simple s p index fund does i think then you recognize it's a very powerful tool and it should be part of your portfolio so that when you hit times like these, when we start debating when the next recession is gonna be, you know, maybe you don't feel like getting out there and buying individual stocks, but that doesn't mean you stop investing. I think a core tenet of what we uh, you know, espouse here is never stop investing. Invest in the good times, especially invest in the bad times because that's typically where the biggest opportunities lie.
2: Although, Jason, uh, I do know that you're aware of the fact that during the last recession, consumer spending in the United States went down in every single category except for one. And that's pets. It's, it does as, seem as, like.
6: As the, as the owner of three dogs, we've had, <laughs> had a few I know those and dogs don't really and, care about
3: economic cycles it turns out they're not that interested
6: horseback riding lessons every Wednesday the power of the animal is, is something to behold Chris and never ever underestimate if you don't have exposure to animals in your portfolio don't come up and debate me like Aaron is asking you to do but just come up and ask me for some ideas because I could help us steer you in a couple stock stock.
3: man if you, if you love your children and hate money then get a horse <laughs>
6: <laughs> Well. See, Bill, it's a, it's a process here, okay? I take her to riding. I don't know that we're ever going to own a horse, but there are interesting lease options out there. So you can lease a horse without really having to, to take the responsibility of the horse. But clearly, I mean, every time I take my pets to the veterinarian's office... Three more payments of,
3: and Flicka's mine.
6: <laughs> proud owner of IDEX Laboratories and Zoetis. I, I always remember, hey, listen, I'm paying that vet bill, but I'm getting a little something back as a share owner of both of those companies.
2: Um, You can submit questions. We're gonna be taking audience questions in just a few minutes, and I promise you, uh, Bill Mann will not reject the premise of your question. Um, But before we get to audience questions, and and Bill, I'll start with you, we'll just go down the line. When it comes to today's market, where are you looking for opportunities? Whether it's an industry, a region of the world, where do you find your analyst mind wandering to? You
3: know, uh, I think that one of the areas that, uh, and this probably won't be much of a surprise to this group, but what has happened over the last decade is we have seen disruption in industry after industry after industry. And I think that the companies that have been doing the disrupting, primarily SaaS companies, uh, just still have a massive amount of opportunity in front of them. Even though, uh, as someone who has value investor deep in his heart, it Hurts me to pay the kinds of multiples uh, that we're looking at, but I just I don't see a segment of the market that has better economics and a better total addressable market than those.
4: Aaron, I'm surprised you didn't say the Norwegian fish market. That's (laughs) next, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I agree. It it sounds kind of boring, but like tech is still the most interesting space in my mind. Maybe to be a bit more specific, though, I'm finding myself thinking more about the industries that haven't been affected as much by technology yet and to, to name a couple I mean one is real estate and we see you know Zillow and Redfin and how they sort of have aggregated you know pricing and consumers coming to their their website but but really if you think about the future of real estate it's going to be much more about like instead of having real estate agents it'll be technology middlemen that that bid and that bid on the 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 houses and then make that transaction process so much easier. So looking at at Zillow, for example, with uh, founder Rich Barton coming back and looking at changing that entire business model over to to just getting into that that facilitation and transaction game, I think the, the winners of that real estate next phase, that's gonna be a huge, huge market and huge returns to come from there. Also, I don't have a lot of great stock ideas for this one. Um, I know there's an interview with the CEO of 2U, I think, tomorrow, but I'm just waiting for more stuff to come in education. Um, I I think higher ed is the next big short, honestly, and um, there have to be new companies coming up, and and getting in early on seeing those companies, I think, will be very rule-breaker and will be rewarding to a lot of investors. Abby?
5: I've been spending a lot of time looking at the IPO market recently and I don't know necessarily that they are the best bargains, but um, I think there's sort of an interesting uh, phenomenon happening in the market. So we've seen more money enter venture capital, which means companies are staying private a lot longer because they don't need the capital by going public. And so um, we're seeing companies go public at much larger valuations and much more established um, competitive positions, market share, things like that. And I think it's been pretty interesting to sort of comb through a lot of those S1s and um, sort of get a taste of what's going on. And I I think a lot of great opportunities lie in those very disruptive, newly public companies.
6: Jason? You know, I, mean, I think everybody here probably knows it by now I'm a big fan of the payments markets and healthcare markets, so I'm not going to bore you with rehashing the war on cash or your healthcare and wealth care baskets, uh, but one market I've been digging a lot into over the past several months is augmented reality. Uh, learning more about not only augmented reality in general, but also specific markets that it's really having the greatest impacts. Uh, certainly healthcare is one of them, uh, but another one that I think sneaks under the radar often is in engineering, engineering software. Uh, these are probably not the sexiest companies in the world and maybe that's why people don't really pay a lot of attention to it. But how many how many Stock Advisor fans, I mean, I know pretty much everybody in here is a Stock Advisor member, but do you remember a company called Desalt Systems? I'm not gonna rule, really, I'm gonna butcher the French accent, really, that was, so. That was terrible. Yeah, yeah. it was bad, but you they know, let's you. just, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good. Uh, the Salt Systems is a company that's been in Stock Advisor for as long as I can remember, and it's one that just flies under the radar and has done really, really well over time. Uh, that's that's one company that's utilizing augmented reality uh, reality technology in in this uh, engineering world. But another one that I, I was really kind of astounded is not a recommendation in our foolish universe, so hopefully some of you will uh, take a look at it uh, as I have, is a company called Autodesk. Uh, very much... That same line of work. They provide that engineering software that helps design everything from buildings to airplanes to even cool special effects that go in movies. Uh, Interestingly enough, they've made a little bit of a change to the business model recently to go more towards a subscription-style business, which, I mean, I think ultimately is a good thing, but I think it also opened a bit of an opportunity uh, in the market as there was perhaps uh, some uncertainty or misunderstanding as to how to project that uh, revenue and profitability out in the future, but I was talking to Brian Feroldi over there earlier, and and we both kind of walked away with the same opinion. It's really a phenomenal company that has snuck under the radar of of a lot of folks. It's one I would encourage you to take a look at. All right, the
2: questions are coming in from the audience, and uh, Abby, the first one's for you, because this ties into a recent IPO that got a lot of attention. Um, What's your take on the fake meat trend? I'm a vegetarian eater who's noticed Beyond Meat is doing well right now. Impossible foods may go public, even though their products cost more than eating animal, more people are eating these meat substitutes. That Beyond Meat IPO was... Outrageous. Outrageous, yeah, good good word. (laughs)
5: Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's an interesting trend, and around the table we talk a lot about um, investing for the world that you want to see, and I think Beyond Meat really plays nicely into that category. With that being said, I think the company's market cap is bigger than the current addressable market, so um, I don't know that now is the time. Is that a problem? Potentially. Um, But no, I mean, I think the science is there. The the engineering behind it has definitely come a really long way since um, where it started, but I don't know necessarily that it's the most intriguing investment idea.
3: Have you guys looked at the uh the ingredients of the Beyond Meat products—it's basically canola oil and pea
6: protein. We had a lot of fun with that pea protein on a recent market yeah. full, or a money. That's what it was, right? I think Mac was really enjoying tossing and around a pea, lot of and, protein and, and then us. wood fiber.
3: Wood fiber. I'm not making this up. There's like 63 Ruffage. other things, but yeah, rough, Yeah, incredibly rough. Um, I. There is obviously a market for meat alternatives. The fact that people are looking at these as a healthy alternative doesn't really, like the ingredients don't fit that narrative. And I think that that's, you know, that's something to really pay attention to if you're interested in these companies themselves. It has nothing to do with the market itself. There are, there are a lot of benefits to, to a non-meat, more plant-based diet. I'm just not sure how many generations away from plants these products actually are.
5: I mean, to be fair, though, I think um, their product positioning, I mean, they don't ever explicitly say no, don't, healthy right. because yeah. it's not actually healthy, <laughs> <laughs> arguably. But um, I think their target demographic is really meat eaters. So, and I actually think that's very smart. Um, rather than going after a vegan or a vegetarian, which is a very small percentage of the population, I think it's about 5%, um, they've a, sort of marketed themselves as a meat alternative. They're in the meat cabinet. They attract um, the similar buyer. And I think 95% of their buyers also bought um, meat products within the same week. So, I mean, there's, it's, not an and, it's an and, not an or to me, but I um, won't argue about eating wood chips. <laughs>
2: Uh, Related to recent IPOs, uh, someone asking, what about Zoom? We love the product at The Motley Fool, I will say that. uh, Zoom video conferencing is a a pretty great interface.
6: In terms of the stock? I mean, I I was very critical, still critical of the valuation, but I don't think that's a Zoom specific thing. I think a lot of these companies are just being bid to the moon because we're in a bit of a mania right here. But uh, I mean, I think it is great technology for a dunce like me, it does just work. Uh, I think there are a lot of applications where this technology will come to play and Aaron was talking about higher ed being disrupted and I think Zoom is a perfect example of a tool that could do uh, some of that disrupting or participate in the disruption. Um, so typically my philosophy is when I find a business that fires in on all of those things that I'm looking for, even if the valuation is still, you know, insane. I tend to buy at least a little bit of that business to get some skin in the game because I know it's a good business that I ultimately want to own.
3: It's funny, Zoom and then also Slack will be, which will be coming out, coming public here soon enough if you think about what they do, they're not doing anything that's different from a functionality standpoint than the things that already existed. But there's, a, there's this, such an interesting curve that I've noticed with technology, is that you've got an increase of functionality and functionality and functionality, and then at the end of the day, the people who tend to win are the ones, like Apple did with the iPhone, who figure out the usability. And for Zoom and Slack, and there's this little comp- company called Apple, uh, they really, they really figured that that out in a big way. And I think they're going to profit mightily from it. I agree with Jason. Uh, the stock is probably a bug in search of a windshield. Um, <laughs> but I would not be, I mean, if that's not something that makes you afraid, I think that this company
5: will win in the long run. I would take the alternative side of that. I think I'm bullish on the stock. I do believe um, not only is the market segment huge, but actually the operating uh, financials behind Zoom are much better than a lot of the IPOs that we're seeing. So um, they're profitable both on a cash flow basis and also on a net income basis, actually. And their um, ability to make money on their customers is actually much shorter time frame. So they start making money at about month nine versus the average SaaS company is about 30 months. So if you think about what that means for a business life cycle, um, Zoom doesn't necessarily need a... Um, Uh, what is it called? The word? Uh, I froze Renewal cycle. Renewal cycle. There we go. (laughs) Reserves. Um, No, they don't need a renewal cycle before they start making money on their customers versus a lot of these other SaaS companies actually need two or three successful renewals. And I think um, looking at a business like that, that's very, very powerful. So I would agree that they're trading at a premium, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily undeserved.
2: Do you see the increasing regulatory oversight of big tech as a warning sign or an opportunity to unlock value by spinoffs if some companies are broken up? And Mm. I would just add parenthetically, or if they choose to break themselves up.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not too worried about antitrust in general. I think if you compare the monopolies, if you even want to call them that today, with the monopolies of the past, monopolies of the past were much more supply-side monopolies. The standard oils, the U.S. steels controlled the supply, limited customer options, and could manipulate prices much more. Today, like, the, the alphabets, the Facebooks, those are demand-side monopolies. Like, we all choose to use them because they're the best. So it's fundamentally different, and these companies have weaker standing on antitrust grounds. What I, what I think is more likely, though, um, is that there will be some scrutiny when it comes to um, terms and contracts that these companies push once they become large Um, they they tend to throw their weight around. So for example, Amazon, when it has third-party vendors using its site, there's, in the contract a lot of times, uh, they're not allowed to sell on other platforms. Or if you look at Apple recently, there's a lot of concern about, is it right for them to take a 30% cut of literally every transaction that goes on through the App Store? Um, And when they recently launched their login with Apple ID, they, they essentially made it mandatory for developers to, to, to include it in their apps. So they're, so they're pushing those terms more. So I could see on the antitrust side how some of those things will be critiqued. But if you look back at Microsoft, for example, in the early 2000s, um, there, there was a lot of noise about antitrust. It still is referred to today. But the reason why Microsoft lost its footing a little bit at that time wasn't because of antitrust. It was because they were late to mobile, they misplayed the internet, they um, they didn't prepare for software as a service early enough. And why they ended up falling behind in a lot of key categories was because they got comfortable in their big size and. And it's more about culture and leadership not adapting. So when I think about these big tech companies today, the question really isn't about antitrust. It it, it could be in some smaller senses, but it's much more about now that these companies are big, now that they're dominant, are they gonna get lazy? Will they adapt when the next tech cycle inevitably comes? Um, So that's what I'm more thinking about, more the, the people and culture side of things.
2: Is it possible they were late to mobile because they were distracted by the government breathing down their necks?
4: Partially, but they have thousands and thousands of employees that they could have, you know, reworked the organization. They they restructured. Tom told us Microsoft restructured like every two years for, for I don't know, maybe like fifteen, twenty years or something as they were ramping up. They, it wouldn't have been that hard to focus on these other categories. They just chose not to.
6: I think he's right. I think that the fundamental problem that the the that, that regulators are going to have with enforcing any type of antitrust regulations on these businesses they basically have to redefine antitrust to begin with. I mean, it's not like these businesses stink, right? I mean, the products that they make, the services that they give us are good. I mean, you can't really punish them for their success. So you'd essentially have to redefine antitrust entirely in order to then be able to enforce some type of, of antitrust regulation. But, to Aaron's point, I think a lot of this really stems from privacy. I think privacy is the buzzword that probably gets most of these companies in hot water. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, you'll you'll see them maybe...
4: Is that an antitrust thing, though?
6: Well, I don't know that that's necessarily I, an antitrust I, thing at all. I feel, all, I feel like, point, really.
4: like when you look at Facebook and stuff and people are calling to break up Facebook, like a lot of people are citing, like, fake news, <laughs> privacy, all these things. That has literally nothing to do with antitrust. Precisely. Um,
6: yeah, I mean, I'm on record, I think in five so, years, these companies are all still together. They haven't spun off anything. There has been no breaking up of anything. Because as you said, I mean, the reason why they're succeeding is because they're good. They have stuff that we want to use. I mean, you can hate the fact that Google's got the biggest search engine in the world, but it's the best technology out there for most people. I mean, people tend to vote uh, now with their clicks, and and Google, generally speaking, gets most of
4: them. The the very last thing I'll say about this is that I'm not that optimistic that the government will make all the right decisions (laughs) here, though, because because when it came to when it came to you've met right (laughs) yeah them determining whether or not like Apple could be sued by developers and such, they they made the decision based on like an old like brick case of a company that makes bricks and you like <laughs> that just doesn't make sense you have to adapt to a new paradigm and i don't necessarily see the sec or ftc or Well, i mean listening listening
6: to the testimony when facebook and twitter and yeah, all had to mess. go up to capitol I mean, it's abundantly clear that these people are not very understanding of what technology is and how it impacts our lives and how it works so if you don't know how something works there's no way you can lay out regulations and guidelines uh, telling businesses what to do in the future
3: I think you actually have to worry a little bit more about Europe than we do about the United States, which has been always international with you, Bill. (laughs) Always international. It is. It's true. So if you think about what's happened in, in, in Europe, they've benefited very little from the companies themselves having been founded in the U.S. And they are dominating economies that don't like it very much. So I think that they have the they they may have the incentive to interpret laws in a way so that they, they can
6: put their foot down. Yeah, certainly Google and Android. Uh, there, there were some big judgments there recently in the EU that, that really played out in the business. I mean, they're saying that they can't really you know preload those apps and whatnot. But even if you don't preload it, you know what? People are still going so to migrate to it right, use it. it well, you know, to a degree, yeah. I don't know that I really contested. <laughs> you're getting there, Bill. Getting okay. by. But I mean, I think it's a good point, though, is even if you can't preload it, consumers typically migrate where the technology works and the services are best. That's why, whether they preload it or not, people are still gonna use it at the end of the day. Uh, last
2: question, and then we have to wrap up. And this actually harkens back to either last year's Fool Fest or maybe just the, the event we had in Austin. Bill Mann, do you still hate Canada? Oh, no. If the Toronto Raptors win the NBA title, will you sing, oh, no. oh, Canada? Well,
3: Do you guys know about them? Yeah, everybody knows, okay. I love Canada, I really do. And I am actually. I, I, my problem is that I'm a lifelong Warriors fan, and by lifelong, I mean I rooted for them when people would say, "Not would say why." Like so, yeah. I'm not rooting for the Raptors. I would be happy for everybody with uh, connected with the Raptors organization, except for Drake to win a world championship. But yeah, uh, I'm gonna get my Canada licks, and
2: later I'm pretty sure. Bill Mann. Aaron Bush, Abby Mallon, Jason Moser. Thanks.
0: Well, lots more happened on the first day of Fool Fest, but that's it for the show. Join us next week as we head back to Fool Fest for a highlight from day two with a team of Foolish analysts sharing their top stock recommendations. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks mentioned on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. The show is edited eventfully by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.